The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Today we're going to be uh, looking at just a wonderful, blessed truth. We're taking a break for a little bit here from doing books of the Bible, which we typically do. We go through entire books, particularly in the New Testament. Um, We recently went through a portion of the book of Genesis, that was fun, first three chapters. We went through Philemon and the book of Acts and uh, taking a little break here to look at some practical topics that we need to think about that we don't often get to talk about when we're just going through a book, but that are relevant to the Christian life, uh, recurrent themes that affect our lives, and one that I think is very important that we don't get to talk about much. And in an area where there's a lot of confusion is the Sermon of the Day. And the title of the sermon is called Chosen of God. Chosen of God. Now, the word chosen there, you can either... Is that a verb or a noun? Yes. And if you're a Christian, the word chosen applies to you. Chosen, because that's how the word chosen is sometimes used in the New Testament. Chosen, depending upon your English translation. So I want to talk about what it meant to be chosen of God... Where God does, but also at the same time as a noun, identifying with the, you, if you're a Christian, you are chosen of God. It's one of the designations or monikers that the New Testament gives to describe someone who believes in Jesus Christ and is born again. You have many names as a Christian. You are a Christian. First, uh, that's Acts chapter uh, 11, I think. And then also in First Peter uses that as a designation for those who follow Jesus. We are Christians, followers of Christ. What else are we called as Followers of Christ. We're called disciples. Disciples of Jesus. Christians. Children of God. The redeemed. Those are kind of the noun forms. And then there's all those verb forms that describe us as well. Well, one of those noun forms that I don't think we think about enough as Christians. I'm a, I'm a Christian. Are you a Christian? Yes, I'm a Christian. I'm a disciple. I'm a follower of Christ. I'm also the elect. I'm a chosen one. That's the idea of what I want to talk about today is our, our, our identity in Christ from that perspective of being chosen of God. A lot of times when we think of the chosen people, those of you who are familiar with that phrase, who are the chosen people? Well, usually we restrict that to Israel, don't we? The chosen people. And there are verses in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 7 is one. There are others, Isaiah, where God does call the nation of Israel his chosen people. Israel mine elect, says the King James Version in the Old Testament. And I'm using the word chosen and elect as synonyms and interchangeable because that's how the New Testament uses those words, chosen and elect. So uh, the Bible definitely says that Israel was special in the Old Testament as God had a very personal, intimate, unique covenant relationship with them. And as a result, God called them his chosen people, his elect People, But that's carried over into the New Testament of anyone who knows Jesus Christ personally. It's not just believing Jews in the Old Testament that are chosen or the elect. Christians are also designated as chosen and elect. And there, there are so many verses, I can't even read them all in the New Testament, that teach that truth. But we're just going to look at a highlight of some of the key ones to remind us of our identity in Christ. That we are chosen of God. We are the chosen people. Christians are believers in Jesus Christ, or we are the elect. 
That is legitimately one of our designations, one of our names, our very identity. So we want to talk about that. So in other words, this title, Chosen of God, referring to believers who were specially chosen by God in a saving relationship out of an act of love on God's part, we became his possession, his own, his very children. And one of the names he gives us is the Chosen of God, or you could say the Elect of God. So really what we're talking about today is the doctrine of election. Now, that can be confusing to some people. That can be intimidating to some people. That can be foreign to some people, depending upon your background and how you grew up. The doctrine of election, what is that? Um, That's actually one of the reasons why I wanted to go over it today, to see what the Bible had to say about the doctrine of election, and just to show you why it's important, it's relevant. It's not an obscure doctrine in the Bible starts in Genesis. It's taught all the way throughout the entire Bible to the very end, even in Revelation. It's taught all throughout the New Testament. It's basic to Christianity, the doctrine of election, but specifically with respect to us as believers. We are the elect of God. We are the chosen of God. And I just want to do a survey of what that means in a very practical and relevant manner. I want you to be blessed today in light of that great truth. So there's a lot you could say about election. You could do it At least I could a 10-week series on election and exhaust all the details of it and all the controversy and all the historical theology and how people fight about it. And No, we're not going to do that. No fighting in church today. We're going to think happy thoughts um, with respect to the doctrine of election. So it's going to be a practical approach to the doctrine of election, but just right from the Bible. And I I have six points here, but there's really two that I'm just going to I really want to emphasize out of these six, but I did want to put it in context so you could understand it. But first I want to look at our theme verse. So look at second Peter chapter one, verse 10, right there in your handout. Or if you have a Bible, the apostle Peter, who founded the first church on the day of Pentecost in the city of Jerusalem with 11 other God ordained apostles of Jesus Christ. And that was the first Christian church. And then Peter ministered from 33 A.D. until he was killed and executed in the mid-60s probably. So he had a 30-year tenure as a pastor, faithful pastor of a local church. And he was evangelizing and building the church, shepherding the church, training men, speaking direct revelation, doing miracles, being a representative and ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ. And towards the end of his ministry he was able to write a couple epistles, First Peter and Second Peter, uh, writing to the saints that he was familiar with, that he had known, that he had been their pastor and had been their elder and also been an apostle. And maybe he knew his time was coming to a close. And But that's kind of the time in which he wrote these two epistles, First and Second Peter, to remind Christians of very important truths. And one of them is regarding election. Do you believe in election? It's kind of interesting when you ask some Christians that. and You never know the answer you're going to get. Do you believe in election? Some people say, uh, no. Some Christians will say, what's that? Others will say, yes. And then the next question is, how do you define it? And you get all kinds of different definitions, again, based on their understanding. And we're just going to look at the Bible today and see what it has to say. Obvious verses to inform our thinking on this matter. So here's Peter writing, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. He's writing to... Uh, Christians abroad generally in the area where he had served. 
uh, he wants to remind them of some blessed truths. He says, grace and peace to you. Uh, oh, by the way, he's writing to believers because that's verse 1, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. So these are Christians. And he greets them with grace and peace in verse 2. Verse 3, he reminds them of the promises of God that because you're a Christian, God has given you, past tense, his divine power is granted to us Christians everything pertaining to life and godliness. Christians have everything they need in this life right now to grow as Christians. The Christian life is sufficient. The word of God is sufficient. The Holy Spirit living in you is sufficient. Prayer is sufficient. Everything we need to grow has been given to us already by God. And so he reminds them of that great truth. But they need to keep growing in their knowledge. We all need to keep growing and maturing and and press on towards that goal. Uh, And then he's working his way up to verse 10. Uh, and he encourages them and says, you've got everything you need to grow as a Christian, but now you need to grow. You need to keep pressing on. You can't just sit on your laurels and be content and stop growing and be passive. The Christian life is a marathon, so you've got to keep moving. You've got to keep plugging away. You've got to jump over the hurdle. You've got to press forward. You fall down, you've got to get back up and keep running. He understands that. That's his exhortation here, and he's encouraging them to do it. By the way, Peter's writing to Christians who are under duress because of persecution, unlike anything we know currently right now where we are. And he's telling them, you've got to keep growing. You've got to keep persevering. You've got to keep trusting. You've got to excel still more. Yes, you're saved. Your sins are forgiven. You know Jesus. Amen. But it's on that basis. You've got to keep going. You've got to keep growing. So that's kind of the context here. And so he, he gives them these commands. Now, for this very reason also, verse 5, applying all diligence, be diligent. Be purposeful, be deliberate in your faith as a Christian. Supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, add more knowledge, spiritual knowledge, biblical truth. And as you add biblical knowledge, verse 6, develop more self-control, fruit of the Spirit. And as you grow in self-control, you'll add perseverance. You're going to need it the longer you live in this fallen world. And in perseverance, you'll develop godliness, verse 7. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. In your brotherly kindness, you'll grow in love. And you need to keep pressing towards these goals as a Christian, verse 8. For if these qualities are yours as a Christian, and they are increasing in a continual ongoing basis, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful. You'll be a fruitful, obedient, healthy Christian moving in the right direction. Not perfect. Right? Not the perfection of your life, but the direction of your life is what Peter is after here. You'll be fruitful for Jesus. Uh, verse 9, for he who lacks these qualities, these virtues, these fruits of the Spirit, is blind, probably not a Christian. And then uh, finally, verse 10, he says, therefore, brethren, therefore, true believers, fellow Christians, and this is my exhortation today for all of us, therefore, as a result... Be all the more diligent. So this is a command for all of us. This is something we need to implement in our Christian life. When's the last time we thought about doing this? Verse 10. Be all the more diligent to make certain. We can have certainty in this life. We live in a post-modern world, they tell us. Well, what is that? Well, one thing they tell us is in a post-modern world, you can't can't be certain of anything. That's their main doctrine. You can't be certain of anything. Certitude cannot be guaranteed you can't really know anything for sure i heard that this week as a matter of fact in a conversation with someone we cannot be certain 
of anything. Well, that's not true. The, the Bible says otherwise. Uh, and right here, we can have certitude. We can have certainty. We can have assurance. We can be sure of something. We can know something truly, as a matter of fact, because God said so. He's able to do that for us. Make certain about what? God's calling and choosing of you. Make certain about God's calling and election of you. Be reminded of and be assured and confident in the fact that you were elected by God unto salvation. That's the command. That's quite a challenge. Think about it to yourself. When was the last time you deliberately thought about the fact that you have been elected by God for salvation? That God chose you, that God elected you, that he chose you before the foundation of the world. He elected you and chose you and set his love and affection upon you before you, the world was even created, before you even existed. That's what election is. When was the last time you thought about that? And Peter's saying, you need to think about it. This needs to be a regular part of your worldview and your identity in Christ. And this is what it means to be a Christian. And there are benefits to that and very practical ones. And we're going to see that as we near the end. So there's our challenge from Peter. So let's pursue this. Let's think very deliberately and diligently about what it means to be a Christian who has been chosen and elected by God to be saved by him. So let's go ahead and start with number one, a definition of election. This is as simple as I could make it. Based on all the many, many verses in the Bible informing election, here's the definition. It is the sovereign act of God. So election is God's doing. He does it. We don't do it. Humans don't do it. It's something God does. Uh, so, And it's the sovereign act. Sovereign means God is king and he can do whatever he wants. He doesn't do anything in deference to somebody else. He doesn't consider what they have to say or think about it. God is sovereign, and he does it according to his will, what he wants. And he has the power to do it. That's what sovereign means. I think of uh, probably one of the best verses on sovereignty is Psalm 115, verse 3, and it says, Our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. Whoa. That is the sovereignty of God. He reigns over all. He does whatever he pleases. He is almighty. He is all powerful. He is omnipotent. No one can stay his hand. That's our sovereign God. So it's a sovereign act of God is election before creation. So it's something God did before we were born. It's something God did and decided upon before the world was even created. That's election. The sovereign act of God before creation in which he alone got chose some people to be saved. This was a decision he made and a decree he gave before creation. He chose some people to be saved based on his good pleasure. What does that mean? Well, why did God choose to elect some in eternity past before we were even born? Well, because of his good pleasure. What does that mean? It means simply that because he wanted to. Some people will raise their hands and ask questions about this highly um, complicated high-level mystery of election. Why did God elect people before the foundation of the world? And you know what my answer is? is because he wanted to. That's my answer. I have no other answer. And we're going to see that in Ephesians 1. That's what it says. God did this because of his good pleasure, because he wanted to. It was his will. I have no other answer. That's not satisfying. If you're a Christian, you can ask God when you get to heaven. Because I, I have the same question. 
Father, do you have any more details? We'll see. So this is election. God choosing some people to be saved, and he made that decision before creation in eternity passed. And he did it based on his will alone for his good pleasure. We'll get into more detail on that. So that's the definition of election. Let's just simply look at some key verses on the fact of election. Maybe you're a Christian today who says, well, I'm not sure if I believe in election. All right, that's okay. Maybe, again, it depends on your, your education, your background, your exposure to Scripture. So let's just look at some verses. I picked a few here. I could have given you about 30 more that just keep saying the same thing. Didn't want to be redundant. But I do want to go to Ephesians 1, and I want to read through that passage. I only gave you a couple of excerpts here on the handout, but I want to read the whole thing in context. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 up to verse 12. Because all the way from verse 3 to 12, it's all about election. It's all about being chosen by God to be saved before the foundation of the world. That's the context. That's what Paul is doing. That's how he starts the book of Ephesians. There's a reason he's doing that. He's doing that because it is a truth. It was revealed to him. This is not intuition. Paul didn't learn this from any human source. Uh, he uses the word mystery, meaning it was revealed to him by the Trinity himself. He got direct revelation from the risen Jesus Christ on this doctrine of election, much of which was not found in the Old Testament. He didn't get it from the other 12 apostles. Paul was a direct channel of some of the details regarding this amazing doctrine of election. And he's trying to encourage Christians with this fantastic truth. It's like Paul saying, man, Christian, do you not even realize how wonderful you have it? How blessed you are? The fact that you are saved, that you are in Christ and all that that means and entails. It is absolutely amazing. It is mind blowing. And let me remind you of one of the greatest truths regarding that matter. And this should affect your thinking. Your thinking is to change. You need to go from earthly thinking to heavenly thinking. And when you've done that, and that's the first three chapters of Ephesians. Okay, now that you've got your thinking in order and you're thinking up here, now live like it. That's chapters 4 through 6 in Ephesians. So Paul, he's man, he's taking us up to the heavenlies where no humans have knowledge except by divine revelation from God himself. So he's talking to Christians, and here's what he says. Paul pastored this church. Paul started this church. And now he's writing back to them and he says, blessed be the God of our father and Lord Jesus Christ, that the triune God, the God that saved you as Christians. Bless that God. Why? Well, because he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. There are so many blessings in the heavenlies reserved for us, some for future inheritance and some even for now in this life to be enjoyed as realities. Well, like what? What are some of these amazing heaven realities that we are partakers of, Paul, that are true of us as Christians? Well, I'm glad you asked. That's why I wrote verse four. Here's the first heavenly blessing. Just as he, that's God the Father, chose us. Just as God the Father elected us. That's the Greek word for election. It even sounds like election. It's a compound word. It's got a preposition. It's like take election and then put a preposition on the front of it, which compounds it, makes it uh, emphatic in terms of the word of election being used there. Well, here it is. First spiritual blessing that God the Father has elected us chosen us before the foundation of the world and he chose us in him he chose us in christ when did he choose us when did he elect us to be saved well before the foundation of the world that means before creation really wow i've never heard this before paul that's why i'm telling you before the foundation of the world well why well in order that we should be holy and blameless before him in love so there's a practical reason god elected us 
to guarantee our salvation, a true transformation, that we truly be born again, that we would truly be made new creatures, and as a result, we would be able to live in a way that pleases him and bear fruit as holy people, that's what it says, set apart, and also blameless before him. This guarantees our sanctification. Election does. Then he goes on. Well, is there more, Paul? Yes, I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 5. In love. In lo- why did God save, or why did God choose to elect us? Well, he did it in love. Because he loved us. He set his love upon us before we were born. In love, he predestined us. Predestination, there it is. Verse 5 and verse 11 talks about predestination. Predestination is not a synonym identically with election. Predestination is a different word. It overlaps with election, but it is a different word with different nuance. Predestination. Pro means before, time. Horizo, horizon. What's a horizon? A horizon is a clear line of demarcation. A horizon is a boundary by which you mark things. What's pro horizon? That's the word for destination. Only used six times in the New Testament. That means in eternity past, God knew us. God loved us. God decided he was going to save us. He was going to elect us to be saved. He's going to elect us to be adopted. And so as a result, he literally marked out the ones that he was going to save. That's predestination. He marked them out. Six times in the New Testament, three times predestination refers to God marking us out unto salvation, predestined. It, or ordained is another translation. Before the world was even created, God ordained some that they might be saved. Predestination. And he, why did he do it? Out of love. Love for his elect, verse 5. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons. Uh, how did he do it? Well, it was through Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection that God, the triune God had planned. This is all accomplished through the work of Christ. According to the, well, what else? Why did he do it? Well, it was according to the kind intention of his will. Why did he do it? Because God was being kind. He was being loving. He was being kind. Oh, but why did he do it? Well, it's his will at the end of verse five. His will. What does that mean? He wanted to. He wanted to. And God does whatever he wants to. And Whatever God does is always perfect. Whatever God does is always good. God can't do anything bad. He can't do anything unfair. His will is always perfect. This is a good thing. Predestination. Well, why else did he do it? Well, I'm glad you asked verse 6. To the praise of the glory of his grace. So that he might be praised by his people who were saved through election. God wanted to create a race of people who would worship him, praise him. Have a relationship with him to the praise of the glory of his grace. That's why he elected us to be saved. Verse 12, that same phrase, to the praise of his glory. The end of verse 14, to the praise of his glory. Why did God choose to elect some to be saved? To the praise of his glory. That's that's why. Those are all the answers why. How did he do it? Well, he verse 6, well, he freely did it. He freely bestowed on us. His love in the beloved. It's not based on what we were going to do, good works. It's not based on what we were going to think we were going to respond to the gospel. This is surely God's will, his work. Salvation is completely and wholly of the Lord. And it freely bestowed on us this grace. It had nothing to do with us when God planned this in eternity past. That's what he's saying. Verse 7. In Christ we have redemption through his blood. So God was going to accomplish it through the death and resurrection of Christ. The benefit would be the forgiveness of our sins when we got saved according to the riches of his grace. This is all God is just trying to pour out grace and goodness and forgiveness on his people. This is cause for worship and rejoicing and thanksgiving. Verse eight, listen to these terms which God lavished on us. He lavished 
You can't out-sin God's grace if you're a Christian. Well, you shouldn't even try. But the fact of the matter is you can't if you're truly saved. Because where sin abounds, the grace of God abounds all the more, says the book of Romans. Jesus' forgiveness just keeps coming, and it keeps coming, and it keeps coming. God, are you mad at me? I did this, and it keeps coming. It keeps, well, I did this too, and I did this again, and it keeps coming, and it keeps coming. The grace of God lavished upon us in Christ Jesus. Ongoing, continual forgiveness. That's the goodness of God and the grace of God. He's a forgiving God. Verse 9, and he made known, wow, this is hard stuff, Paul. Yeah, it is. It's a mystery. Peter's having a hard time with it. He wrote about it in one of his epistles. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention. He's doing this because he's kind, which he purposed in Christ. Then he goes on and talks again about predestination in verse 11. So uh, that's one of the key passages on election. So if you want to study that, read it. Uh, Be reminded of it, those blessed truths that you are a child of God if you believe in the gospel, if you repented from sin and you've cried out to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith to be saved through him and him alone, through his person, through his death, through his resurrection on your behalf. That's how you become a Christian. That's how you get saved. That's what we are called to do. God does election in eternity past. In this life, we are called to do something. There's a trick question that I like to ask seminary students. So do we have to do anything to get saved? And usually they'll say, no. And then I'll read about 15 verses in the Bible of all the things we have to do to be saved. Like the guy that said to Peter, what must I do to be saved? And Peter said, he didn't say, oh, you don't have to do anything. He said, repent. Acts chapter 2. Repent and believe in the gospel. And as a matter of fact, get baptized. Baptism is not a part of salvation, but you need to be obedient. Or the Philippian jailer in Acts 16. Well, Paul, what do I need to do to be saved? Paul didn't say nothing. Just kick back. God will elect you. No. Repent. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Romans chapter 10. Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you will be saved. Jesus said, follow me. Follow me. Take of me. Eat of me. Deny yourself. Love me more than anyone else. So Jesus had demands and calls of us to the will of us of things we had to do. And that perfectly complements the doctrine of election. How? In the mind of God. It's resolved in the mind of God. Well, I don't understand it. Yeah, I know. Neither do I. But I believe it because it's clear in Scripture. So that's Ephesians 1. Uh, just a couple of others. Second Thessalonians 2.10 says, get this, the Apostle Paul, from the beginning, from the time of creation and before, God has chosen you or elected you for salvation. There it is. God elected us to salvation how did you get saved well i heard the gospel how did you get saved well i repented and believed how did you get saved well god chose you before the foundation of the world to be saved those are all true statements how did you get saved well i came to know jesus how did you get saved jesus saved me how did you get saved god predestined he marked me out in eternity past to set his love and affection upon me that i might be saved in this lifetime those are all true from the beginning, uh, listen to Jesus taught an election and he believed it. Many statements Jesus said regarding election, chosen salvation. Uh, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Romans 8, 28, 29 and 30 talks about how God loved us in eternity past. And then he predestined us because he loved us. And then in this life, he called us and wooed us to himself through the gospel. And then he justified us and saved us in a moment of time. And then he will, based on that, it's guaranteed he's going to glorify us in the future. That's Romans eight, twenty-nine. 
And then Colossians 3.12, as elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies. Just a reminder that we have been saved by election through the gospel. Well, let's go on to number three. So we've got this amazing work of God that's a mystery, but has been revealed, a supernatural work. Hard to understand. We believe it by faith. Why is why do we have why did God choose to do election anyway? Well, there was a need for election. Two main things. And the reason God needed to initiate election on who might be saved was because we couldn't save ourselves because the Bible teaches in many places. But like in Ephesians 2, it says, as unbelievers, we were born into this world dead in trespasses and sins. We had physical life when we were born, but spiritually we were spiritually still born. That is the teaching of the Bible. That's why Jesus said you must be born again. So we were born sinful. We were born spiritually dead. We could not respond to God on our own. No spiritual stimulus whatsoever. So God had to intervene supernaturally. And one of the ways he intervened supernaturally to override spiritual death is election that he chose to do in eternity past. Not only that, is it impossible for an unbeliever to believe and get saved in this life apart from the grace of God because of their own sin, but because of supernatural work of Satan who blinds the minds of unbelievers. Second Corinthians four, four satanic blindness. Paul reminded the Corinthians, by the way, there are some unbelievers won't believe your gospel. You go out and preach. They won't believe you. Many times they'll curse you. They will reject it. They will defy it. They won't believe it. Some will never believe. Well, why do they not believe? No matter what kind of an argument I give and all the logic I give and all the evidences I give, how come some just won't believe, Paul? And he says, because they are satanically blinded. The God of this world is Satan, has blinded their minds so that they might not see the light of the gospel. So you've got sinful blindness and satanic blindness are impediments to believing the gospel. And so God overrides that through election that he chose to do in eternity past and every person that god chose to elect in eternity past is guaranteed they will be saved in this lifetime that's romans eight thirty. they will be justified they will be glorified as they still need to hear the gospel though they still need to repent they still need to believe that's the amazing thing god elected us in eternity past but god does not save anybody against their will in this lifetime how does that work? I don't know. It's amazing. Number four, what is the basis of election? Well, it's all rooted in God's character. I already read Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does as he pleases. That's why election can happen. That's why it is good. That's why it is true. Because of the character of God, because of his omnipotence, his power, he is in charge. Other characteristics about God that will enable election to happen. Ephesians says because he's a loving God. Because he's a kind God, a gracious God, a forgiving God, and a wise God. That's all in Ephesians 1 we just read. What else is the basis of election? Well, the purpose of God, his will. He wanted to, he decided to, and it was to the praise of the glory of his grace. To the praise of the glory of his grace. It was his purpose. What else is the basis of election? Well, the work of Christ. It can't be done apart from Christ. It was in him. In him. By the way, he says, in Christ, in him, like 11 times in 13 verses in, in Ephesians 1. It is all in keeping with the work of Jesus Christ. No one is saved apart from the atoning death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the basis of election. In other words, the basis of election is not in what ultimately what humans do or think. We can't save ourselves. This is completely the gracious, merciful, 
work of God. We, are, we have nothing to offer. The only thing we have to offer is just a prayer of repentance and admission of our guilt to God. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Amazing God. There is a, a warning here or a caution, number five. That's the mystery of election. Paul did refer to it as a mystery. New information given. But we have to keep in mind that for humility's sake that we are limited on this. We have limited information. God didn't tell us everything we could know. But he's told us everything we need to know about it. He's given us just enough that we need to know to believe him, to be encouraged by him with these truths. And that's Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord. There's some stuff God just ain't going to tell you in this lifetime. That's that's good. We probably can't handle it. But the things revealed belong to us and our children. So let's just focus on what is revealed in the Bible. Let's not ask questions about what is not revealed in the Bible. Well, what about this? Well, what about this? Well, what about this? Well, is that in the Bible? No. Okay, then sorry, can't help you. Let's focus on what he's revealed. The secret things belong to the Lord. That's submitting to God's sovereign choice. That's obedience. That's a good thing. We are finite. We're limited in our knowledge. And also, um, I put there, we believe it by faith. I cannot logically explain the doctrine of election. There's only one reason why I believe in the doctrine of election. I believe it passionately, without wavering. It's as clear as a bell. Why do I believe it? Because it's in the Bible. And I just believe what the Bible says. No human could have come up with this doctrine. In a zillion years, I never would have come up with this doctrine. But I believe it, and I believe it by faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. As a matter of fact, the most difficult doctrines in the Bible that are taught clearly, I believe all of them. And the only reason I believe them is because it's in the Bible. By faith. You mean God really created the world in six days? Yeah. Why do you believe that? Because it's in the Bible. I mean, there really is an eternal hell for those who reject Christ that's conscious, eternal punishment. Yeah, it's terrible. You believe that? Yeah, why? Because it's in the Bible. I didn't believe any of this stuff before I became a Christian. We walk by faith, not by sight. And then we'll close with this, moving into our baptisms. The focus of election. In the dozens of verses that I looked up on talking about simple election, There's a real clear focus, especially from the Apostle Paul and Peter. When they're talking about election, they are talking to Christians. They are talking clearly. It's not obscure. And they're talking to Christians, get this, to encourage them in their faith. There it is. It's positive. It's almost reserved solely for the doctrine of soteriology or the doctrine of salvation. And that's what I want you to take away regarding the doctrine of election today. Of all these verses, if you look them up in the New Testament, it's 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 just a, from a pastor's heart trying to encourage his people who were discouraged, who were down, who doubted, who wavered at times in their faith for many different reasons. And we have this; we're the same way. We have doubts. We waver, and for a lot of different reasons. Why do why do we waver in our faith at times, even if we're Christians? I I wrote uh, I thought of nine reasons. Ready? Because we sin. That undermines our faith. That undermines our assurance. Uh, We have trials in life. That undermines our assurance at times. Because of the success and prosperity of the wicked, that can cause us to doubt. Because we're not in the Word, reading the Bible regularly, that makes us dry, causes us to doubt. We're not in prayer, that can cause us to doubt and lose assurance. Because we're in the flesh and we're frail in this fallen world, that is continual in terms of trying our faith. 
because we lack fruit and we we don't see change that we expect. Man, 20 years has gone by and this still hasn't changed. That's frustrating. That can cause us to waver in faith. Unanswered prayer. I've been praying this for this person's, this family member's salvation for 30 years. They're still not saved. That's discouraging. That might cause our faith to waver. And you look around this world and it seems like, at least from my perspective, things are getting worse and worse. That's not encouraging. And that can undermine a Christian's faith that everything's getting worse and worse. It's not getting better and better. And we should know better because the New Testament says the world is going to get worse and worse. Clearly. So we need to be encouraged in our faith. And one of the doctrines God gave us to meditate upon and think upon is that we are secure in Christ. Despite my sin, my shortcomings, my frailties, my doubts, my frustrations, my trials, people who disappoint me. My finiteness, the fallen world in which I live, I am secure in Christ because I believe in the simple gospel. God saved me. He's a merciful God. It's None of it is contingent upon me. I didn't save myself. I can't preserve myself. I can't keep myself saved. It's all the work of God. He's completely sovereign. And if God did save you, he will preserve you. If God did save you, he will glorify you. Isn't that encouraging? When everything else around us just seems to be crashing in falling apart like on that sea that was crashing with waves and jesus comes in to calm your heart you know what stay focused on me i got everything under control you are secure in the words of paul in ephesians in him in christ in him in the beloved that's what we need to do is get our eyes off self and get them more and more on christ and give him all the glory for it. Let's go ahead and pray. And then we are going to hear some wonderful testimonies right now in baptism. So go ahead and bow your heads. We're going to pray. Heavenly Father, we are in awe of your kindness to us in Christ. Before the foundation of the world, electing us, choosing us to believe, enabling us to believe in Christ providing all the necessary means for us to believe, all the necessary means for our salvation, a Redeemer, forgiveness of sins, resurrection, full atonement, forgiveness of all sin. God, we are so grateful. That should be the response of our hearts, thankfulness to you for your plan of salvation, that ultimately our faith and perseverance is not in our hands, but in yours and your gift of grace. But I do pray for anyone in here today that might be fooling themselves because they are relying upon election and not relying upon Jesus. I pray if there's anyone in here who is religious, who might even call themselves a Christian, who is relying on election and not relying upon Jesus, that they would put their faith in Jesus Christ this morning and repent from their sins and believe the gospel. And then having believed the gospel can look upon God knowing that he has granted them faith, that he has elected them, that they are his elect from all eternity. God, thank you for this wonderful doctrine. Thank you for choosing us out of your love, not out of our goodness, out of your pleasure, not out of our worthiness. And I pray that every Christian here today would be warmed and encouraged by this wonderful truth and ask these things in jesus name amen thank you for listening dr mcmanus is an author 
seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.